want to say welcome to those of you here in the room with us, as well as those who may be joining us uh, online via live stream. As well, so happy that you're here with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Chris. Good to be one of your pastors here at New Life. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we get rolling with the message this morning. The first is that next Sunday we're having a health fair from 1015 to 1230 right here um, upstairs in the student rooms. So we've got a great team of medical professionals here at New Life, doctors, nurses, PAs, uh, the, whole, the whole team. And so just let me encourage you, they're going to be doing uh, blood pressure checks, glucose checks. Uh, they'll take a look at your medication list, if that would be helpful, sleep apnea assessments, uh, just the whole gamut of things. And so if that would be a blessing to you, just want, to know, want you to know that that ministry is available to you. That'll be next Sunday, 1015 to 1230, right upstairs in the student room. So make sure you take advantage of that, if that would be a blessing to you. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that today is the day that we're going to begin to take up our annual SEND missions offering. Now we're going to take it up through uh, the rest of the year. In fact, I had one guy after the 915 come up and say, hey man, I came last year for the first time, and when you said send missions offering, I thought you said sin offering. And so well, listen, we're not going to sacrifice any goats or bulls up here, no sin offerings. This is a send missions offering with a D at the end. Send missions offering. And uh, this, goes, this goes to fund all of our missionary partnerships uh, in the city, uh, in the nation, and around the world in 2024. And so just want to encourage you, if you're part of the faith family here, some of you have probably came prepared to give today. That's great. If you didn't, that's fine. Again, we're going to take it up through the end of the year. But please just be in prayer what the Lord may have you uh, give to participate and sing the gospel. Go out in our city and around the world. And 100% of this offering goes to all of those uh, endeavors. None of it stays in-house. So uh, that's that. Uh, the last few weeks, um, our theme, our anthem has been, as we've been kind of walking through our missions emphasis month, has been compelled by love. That's been the whole, the whole message theme, right, for all these weeks, right out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to put a wrap on that series, and we're going to kind of land the plane on our missions emphasis month. And what I want to talk to you today about is the topic of the extraordinary, ordinary life. The extraordinary, ordinary life. It's been said that everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes, right? And I think many of us can probably relate to that. I think this is an important topic for us today because I think there's this idea that has kind of spread among Christianity. I think it's kind of invaded our churches and influenced our student ministries and kids' ministries. And it goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it uh, preached or taught in some context. But the idea is this. To be useful to God, you must do something extraordinary for God. And I think the heart behind that message is actually a good one. Like, who doesn't want to do something extraordinary for God if you love Jesus? But here's where I think it can go off the rails really quickly. Most of us, the reality is most of us are never going to be Billy Graham. Right? And most of us are not going to ever pack out stadiums with 100,000 people. Most of us are never going to turn into Mother Teresa overnight and sell everything that we own to move to India to care for the poor orphaned and dying and to share the love of Jesus with them. As great as those things are, that's not the reality for most of us in our lives. And so the implied thought is, hey, if you can't do something like that with your life, that someone will write a book about one day or make, you, make a movie about one day, if you're not going to live that kind of extraordinary life in the kingdom of God, then you're just kind of a B-level Christian. You're just kind of like the, the, the JV team of Jesus followers. 
And so the, the implied thought is there, well, your job now is just to come and plop down, plop down for an hour on Sunday morning and, and kind of observe the, the, the varsity-level Christians on the, the screen or the stage or, or maybe pray for the varsity-level Christians who are missionaries abroad, something like that. The problem with this idea, both biblically and historically, is that God, more often than not, uses ordinary people living very ordinary lives to make him known to the world. So here's the big idea. I'll give you the big idea on the front end. If you're a note taker, write this down. This will be on the screens for you. God accomplishes his extraordinary plans through the ordinary lives of ordinary people. Let me say that one more time. God accomplishes his extraordinary plans through the ordinary lives of very ordinary people. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel really hopeful. Because the reality is this, and I know this about myself, I, I'm a nobody, right? I'm, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I'm, I'm not Mother Teresa. In fact, I've struggled at times. I kind of realized this as I was studying for this this week. I've kind of struggled at times in my journey with Jesus with a, with a complex about this. Now, some of you may or may not know this about me, but by nature, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, right? And so uh, I'm not proud of this, but I, I'm the guy that looks out the window before I check the mail to make sure no other neighbors are out there as well so I don't have to have any awkward conversations at the mailbox, right? And if you call me, the first question that runs through my mind is, why didn't he text, right? <laughs> like, I hope somebody's dying. If you, why, why, are you, why are you calling me? Now, where are my fellow, fellow introverts out? Just raise your hand, be proud. Almost half the room, introverts, that's right. Listen, most geniuses actually are introverts. True, true, true story. I, actually, I don't know if it is, but yes, introverts unite separately, and don't call me ever. We're united in spirit, all right? I, <laughs> I remember um, when I first really began to follow Jesus in college, I was, uh, I mean, I was on fire for the Lord and excited about his mission for my life, and so... I joined a, uh, a college, a, a student mission trip that was going to London. And um, so we were gonna go and um, just minister to homeless people in the tube and um, share the gospel, pray with people, serve in homeless shelters, just kind of see where the spirit led. And so there were about 10 of us college students and one of my good friends at the time was a, a, a very extroverted, uh, very gifted, natural evangelist. And so we would go down to the subway or as they call it, the tube over there. And uh, he would sit down beside people and he would just kind of naturally be able to strike up these really comfortable conversations with people. I just, it just came naturally to him and people would, would open up their lives to him and by by the end of it they would be like all emotional and he'd be he'd say something like i really just feel like jesus is the missing piece to your life and would you like to follow jesus and they would start crying yes i would love nothing more and it's like man so i'm like watching him do all this and again just a, a gifted evangelist have you ever known somebody like that they could just lead a doorknob to jesus they're like yes i repent for my sins right and so I'm like, I'm watching this. I'm observing. I'm like, that doesn't look that hard. And so I go and sit next to a guy, and I start striking up a conversation. And he looks at me like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> like, well, that didn't go well. But maybe I'll try it again. So I go, and I, I sit by a lady on the tube and, and, and start talking to her. And then she, she moves her purse to the other side and, like, clutches it. <laughs> like, I think she's got her trigger on her, on her mace or something like that. And I don't know if I just have, like, I'm a potential criminal vibes or... I might mug you facial expressions, but I just came away from that experience like, man, I really stink at this. And so, man, I, I struggled at times early in my faith journey wondering how God could use someone like me. 
Someone who would rather read a theology book for three hours by the fireplace rather than evangelize my neighbors at the mailbox. Like, how can God use someone like me? I can see how I can use my extroverted friend with a gift of evangelism, but how is God going to use somebody like me? But as I studied the scripture and observed how the kingdom of Jesus functioned around me over time, I came to realize God really does love using ordinary people living ordinary lives in extraordinary ways. And that, at least for me, was life-giving and hopeful and gave me courage to take the next steps in my faith journey with Jesus. And so I'm really excited about uh, what God has for us in his word this morning. It was encouraging to me as I studied. I hope that it's encouraging to you as you, as you hear it. But let's pause and, uh, for a moment and pray and ask for God's help as we get ready to open his word. God, we, we come to you and the truth is the vast majority of us in this room and watching online are very ordinary. We are ordinary people, living very ordinary lives, living ordinary jobs, going to ordinary schools, married to ordinary spouses or single people, living with ordinary roommates. And God, I think a lot of us have just kind of bought the lie that God can't use us in extraordinary ways because we're ordinary folk living ordinary lives. God, so would you begin by the power of your spirit to begin to break down those lies in our mind, in our hearts this morning, so that we might see clearly that you delight to use ordinary people living ordinary lives in amazing ways in your kingdom. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul, um, many of you are familiar with him, became uh, probably the most prolific church planter, missionary, uh, who's ever walked the face of the planet, wrote a huge portion, actually the majority of the New Testament. If you're familiar with Paul's writings in the New Testament, you know that he uh, typically is writing to churches that he planted who are struggling. Uh, do you want to know why they're almost always struggling? Because they were not full of superheroes either. <laughs> they were full of ordinary people living very ordinary lives, just like you are and just like I am. Single moms, blue-collar dads, teenagers trying to figure out what life is all about, older saints who maybe have some, some time and freedom and, and resources but now are dealing with, with health complications and issues, messy marriages that they dealt with, old grudges, past hurts and baggage, all of it, very ordinary people just like you and me. And the extraordinary thing about Paul's writings, at least I think for today's purposes, is that he gives them, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, us as his modern day disciples, I think a four-step game plan for living an extraordinary, ordinary life, right? So four things that you can do to really live a life of impact as you live out your very ordinary life. And so I think this will be an encouragement to you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and head to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, that's going to be our anchor passage this morning. Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome to a group of Christians who had gotten sidetracked from their mission. So they had really kind of gotten tangled up in uh, chasing extra stuff and extra teachings beyond the simplicity of the gospel message of Jesus. And Paul is writing them to give them the keys to course correct and get their uh, ordinary lives back on track so they can make an impact in the kingdom of Jesus. So Colossians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, this will be on the screens for you. Paul writes this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So right out of the gate, Paul gives us the first mark of an extraordinary, ordinary life. Now, you don't have to be a Navy SEAL Christian to do this. So mark number one of an extraordinary, ordinary life. Number one, pray persistently. Pray persistently. Actually, uh, the word that Paul uses there is translated in English, steadfastly. That word in the Greek carries the idea of persistence, relentlessness, and consistent devotion. So that's, that's, how we ought to, that's how we ought to pray. And I'm convinced that for, for too many of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we give up too easily when it comes to our spiritual lives. Far too many of us are, man, we are relentless in our careers. Man, we're bulldogs, we're hard workers, right? We're up early, we work late, we go the extra mile. We are relentless in our schooling, our sports, our hobbies, but then we have kind of a quitter syndrome in our spiritual lives. Like, bro, I prayed twice and nothing happened. I read my Bible for three days in a row and I didn't turn into Billy Graham, so I just kind of put it, put it down. Listen, guys, if we took that same approach in any other area of our lives, that just for instance, that if we took that approach in our career, we would all be fired, right? Could you imagine? Like, I came to work three days in a row, I didn't get a promotion. I'm done. Just not, just not showing up. Just not, just not worth it. Didn't work out for me. We took that approach in school, we would all flunk out. We'd be terrible at all of our hobbies, right? Could you imagine you go, you try golf for the very first time, you're like, I wasn't Tiger Woods, I'm done with this junk. This is terrible, right? No, 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 everything worthwhile in life takes time, effort, consistency, relentlessness, and practice. And Paul is saying to us, hey, listen, Christian, be that way in your prayer life. Be, be relentless, be persistent, why? because God hears the prayers of his sons and daughters and ultimately he's moved to action. You guys know, I have three kids, I adore all of them, love them to death. Uh, when they ask me for something relentlessly, so if they ask for something once, I'm like, I don't really know if they're, it's a, a, a fad, a phase, they're just thinking about it, it'll be gone tomorrow. But when they come to me persistently, relentlessly, day by day, week by week, listen, unless it's something that's like harmful for them or bad for them, more often than not, I'm compelled to give them that. Why? Because as their father, I love my kids and I hear their requests and I hear their pleas and it gives me joy, it gives me delight to give them good things. This always reminds me of the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 of the persistent widow and the evil judge. Do you guys remember that parable that Jesus told? There's this, this evil judge, and he's, he's corrupt, and he's wicked in the city, and there's this poor widow who has uh, experienced some form of injustice. We don't even really know what it was, but she persistently, day by day, goes to that wicked, evil, corrupt judge and just pleads for justice. And finally, what the evil judge says is, listen, I don't fear God, and I don't like people, but so that this woman won't beat me down, I will grant her her request. And Jesus turns to the Pharisees who understood religion but were dead spiritually, and he says to them, listen, if a wicked judge answers the persistence of a poor widow, how much more would your good father in heaven to his children who come to him day and night? It's this idea of being, being persistent in our prayer lives, of being relentless, of being steadfast, that we don't give up easily, like we stay the course, like there's value in that. So that's the how of prayer. He says he wants you to pray, and don't just pray once, don't just pray twice, don't just pray a hundred times. Pray persistently, pray relentlessly. But what should we pray for? He continues on in verse three, look at this. 
Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul says to these ordinary followers of Jesus in the city of Colossae almost 2,000 years ago, pray steadfastly, and as you pray, here's what I want you to pray for. Pray for open doors. Pray for open doors so that I might proclaim the mystery of King Jesus in a clear way that people can understand and hopefully respond to. In other words, what Paul is saying here is pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. So let me just ask you, and this is kind of just a self-examination question, do you pray that consistently in your life? Do you pray that God would give you opportunities to declare the mysteries of Jesus to your classmates, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to people that you bump into at Ingalls or Publix or whatever it is? Is that prayer on your lips to the Father? Because if it's not, and you're following Jesus, Paul says this ought to be a, a prayer that we persistently pray. Like, God, give us opportunities. Give us open doors. And I'll be the first to admit I'm, I'm not always great at this, but I want to share one personal experience, maybe just kind of show you how this works. When Cheryl and I first moved to uh, Southeast Asia, we were uh, teaching English in a, uh, co a college center. And uh, there was a young man, we'll just call him uh, Sam, took an interest to us. And I don't know if it's because we were Westerners or Americans or whatever, but he just wanted to hang out with us all the time. He's one of our students, and he would drop by our apartment and just hang out, come hang out on the weekends. And um, he was a really lovely, fun guy, and we enjoyed uh, talking to him and building a friendship with him. But what we noticed after about six months is every time we would try to open the conversation to anything spiritual, spiritual at all, his eyes would just kind of glaze over. Uh, he, would just, he would just kind of shut down. Have you ever had that experience? You're trying to share something spiritual with somebody and it just, man, it wasn't there. And so we tried again and again and again and not, not being pushy, but just as things opened up, if he talked about going to the mosque or whatever, and we'd try to share our faith in Jesus and he would just automatically just go silent. He wouldn't even engage with us. And so I began to pray, God, like I, we're only over here on a two-year contract and, and I don't wanna waste my, my life over here. Like, God, would you, open, would you open the door so that we could share the gospel with some people that are ready to receive it and to respond? And shortly after that, we got a new college student, one of my classes, his name was Janu, and Cheryl and I had the idea that we're gonna start a college a Bible study in our homes, which is kind of risky because it's actually legal over there to evangelize or share your faith with Muslims, but we had Muslim students coming and nominal Catholic students coming and atheistic students coming, and one time I just felt prompted as we were studying the Bible to give a gospel presentation, but I was a little bit intimidated because, again, it's illegal, could get kicked out of the country, could get thrown in prison or interrogated by the city police or whatever it is, and I gave, like, the weakest, uh, worst gospel presentation maybe that's ever been given. And I was like, oh, that was terrible. And uh, as everybody sort of started uh, filing out and, and leaving our home, there was one young man, John, who stayed behind. And he said, hey, Chris, all that Jesus stuff that you were talking about, I think I need that in my life. And he prayed to receive Jesus. And I got to disciple that brother for uh, the next year. He went back to his uh, home island and led his elderly father to Jesus. He started a Bible study on his college campus. I got an email from him like five years later after we'd already left and moved back to the States. And he said, hey man, I wanna go on a mission trip. Can you hook me up with any contacts somewhere in Southeast Asia? So I hooked him up with some missionaries that were working in Cambodia and they'd been trying to reach this village for years with no success. And so John who flies over there, he goes on this mission trip in Cambodia. Uh, a couple months later, I get an email from the missionaries there and they're like, where did you find this guy? Like, we've been trying to get into this village for years. He goes, and there's already a church planted. There are brothers and sisters meeting in this village now. 
That's just a series of like God stories and amazing things that happen. Now, now what did I do besides like give like the worst, weakest gospel presentation ever? What did I do? I prayed for opportunity. That's all I did. I just begged God, like, help me not waste my time over here. Help me not waste my life over here. Give me, give me an open door. And then when God opened that door, I was faithful to walk through it. So how do we pray according to Paul? Persistently, what do we pray for? Open doors, opportunities. And then notice the second part of the equation. He says, pray for an open door so that I may declare the mystery of Christ clearly. In other words, don't just pray for the open door. Pray for the boldness to walk through the door when God opens it. Because how many of you have had an experience in your life where you had God open a door and you just blew it? Don't raise your hand, but my hand's up. <laughs> like you prayed for an opportunity and then there was just like an open door to insert the gospel in that relationship and you just, you just froze up, you chickened out, you walked away. And Paul says, listen, pray steadfastly, pray for open doors, but don't just pray for the open door because the open door doesn't do you any good if you don't have the courage to walk through it. Pray for the courage and the boldness to walk through that door when he opens it for you. And so here's my encouragement to you, faith family, this morning. Pray for your friends, and then in light of the fact that we're in Missions Emphasis Month, pray for the nations. Pray for your friends, pray for the nations. We talked about last week, God's missionary heart for the nations. So let's pray that God would raise people up and send them out to the 3.1 billion people who are unreached and have no access to the gospel of Jesus today around the world. In the same breath, as we pray for that open door, pray for your friends, pray for your classmates, pray for your coworkers. Pray for people that you bump into at the coffee shop that you visit every single week, that God might open a door for you so you would perhaps be able to speak to your friends and maybe even go to the nations. We have a team in, in North Africa right now. We prayed for them on the stage uh, last week. Ordinary people following an extraordinary God. And we wanna make this as easy as we possibly can for you. You may not know this, but our elder team um, has set aside some funds, as long as those funds last for our uh, covenant team members here, uh, that you can take any of our national uh, mission trips, short-term mission trips, uh, and th that price, regardless of what the, the cost is, will be capped for you. The cost will be capped at $500. You can take any global trip, our global trips, and that cost will be capped at $1,000, meaning that a trip that would normally cost you three dollars to $4,000 and be unaffordable for you now will be capped at $1,000, so you can go globally for the cost of what it would cost you to go, probably go for a long weekend in Myrtle Beach until those funds run out. We wanna make this easy on you. We wanna remove any hurdles for you, right? So that when God opens that door, and maybe for some of you, that's the step that you need to take. You just need to say, yes, I'm gonna go on a short-term mission trip, whether it's to Washington, D.C. or North Africa with New Life next year. But even if you don't do that, even if you can't do that, you can, you can pray, right? So pray for your friends, pray for the nations, pray for open doors, pray for the courage and the boldness to walk through those doors when God opens them to you. Why? Here's why. Because prayer is an irreplaceable part of the mission of God. Prayer is an irreplaceable part of the mission of God. So it's important, right? It's important. So pray persistently. Here's the second step. Look at verse five. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So the second part of the game plan to live an extraordinary, ordinary life is number two, walk wisely. Walk wisely. Now, this is something that Paul has been praying for these brothers and sisters all throughout the letter of Colossians. In fact, you go all the way back to Colossians 1, verse 9. I'll put it on the screens for you. Listen to his prayer for them. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all what? Spiritual wisdom. This idea of walking wisely and understanding. So Paul's like, listen, y'all, step two of the game plan is not only pray persistently, but walk wisely among outsiders, making the best use of the time. You see, as, as apprentices of Jesus, we know that God made the world and everything in the world. So as we learn how to align our lives in his world and live according to his design and his plans, we start to leverage our time and invest our money and use our talents in a way that honors Jesus and blesses others. Rosaria Butterfield, some of you are familiar with her writings. She was a professor at Syracuse University in New York. Uh, her words, not mine, a self-professed lesbian feminist on a mission to expose Christianity, and so that she was on a, a writing project to, to write a book exposing uh, Christians, until uh, one day she was befriended by a very ordinary pastor and his very ordinary wife. And so I want you to hear part of her story, so just look up at the screens. We live at this time where so many Christian ideas are understood as hate speech. After the Obergefell decision legalized gay marriage, that put the gospel on a collision course with the new law of the land. And I think many Christians have been struggling with, well, how do I speak? What do I do? How do I move forward? Home is a vital place to invite your neighbors in to have some heartfelt conversations. We can love our children together. We can let some things slide, even though the world we live in would say that we're supposed to be enemies. To me, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. I was raised in an Italian family. There were some issues in my house that made it almost impossible to have people in. So hospitality didn't really become endemic to my life until I had set up a home of my own. I was a professor at Syracuse. I lived as an out lesbian feminist in New York. In our LGBTQ community, somebody's home was open every night of the week. And there was never a question, where will I go if I need help? Because the community itself is organic and fluid, and that was how we dealt with crises. After I wrote my tenure book, I really wanted to write a book that was on my heart. Why is the religious right such a hateful community? And why do they hate people like me? I was on a war against two things, patriarchy and stupid. So I was really curious to know why relatively decent people would use the Bible in such a hateful way. So I wrote an editorial and it brought all kinds of attention my way, which I didn't really expect. But one of the things it brought my way was a letter from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. When Ken and his wife Floyd invited me to dinner, I, I was happy. I, th I thought of Ken as my unpaid research assistant. And they were fine with the fact that I, I wanted to read the Bible to critique it. That began a research journey that changed my life. But it wasn't research that changed my life. In Ken and Floyd's home, the way that they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing, 
example of the theology that they were teaching. dinner at Ken and Floyd's house. Ken gave me a big hug. Floyd gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. We said, we'll catch up next week. This was fun. Can't wait to do it again. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to church. And that was so wonderful, because what it showed to me was that they didn't see me as a project. They actually saw me as a neighbor. Now, I didn't step foot in the church for two years, but every week I was in their home. And every week, it was clear that pretty much anything could go. We could ask anything, Ken and Floyd were fine. And that process of dialogue and table fellowship was compelling. It was deeply compelling. I did not come to faith because I stopped feeling like a lesbian. It's not that I got all of my worldview issues just completely cemented with a happy Christian evangelism, not at all. I came to faith because I became convicted that Jesus is who he says he is. Ephesians 4.29 is our watchword, that we are to impart grace to the hearer. I might not agree with everything that you hold to be near and dear, but because we are neighbors, I don't have to say everything that's on my heart. And you don't have to say everything that's on your heart right now. We can put some of our worldview issues aside. And over years of this, the gospel takes on a momentum that is compelling to people. I think we need to give each other the reminder that it's God who saves. It's not about certainly us being perfect or our words being perfect, but show up we must in the lives of unbelievers. What comes naturally to me and what comes naturally to you is to hang out with people who are like us, <laughs> people who can maybe finish our sentences, people who don't scare us. But hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them family of God. It's a great joy to see the gospel bring people together who are supposed to be enemies. And it's a great joy to know that God never gets the address wrong. And if your neighbors aren't people you know yet, there's a blessing waiting for you. Now, you'll notice in the story that she tells, um, the couple that she met, the very ordinary pastor and his wife of a small church in New York, they didn't wow her with a prolific gospel presentation. She says she didn't even go to church for two years. They simply walked wisely among outsiders, making the most of the time. Rosaria uh, is now married to her husband, Kent, who's a pastor, and along with their four kids, they're serving in a church in another city in North Carolina. She writes and speaks all over the world. And the lesson I think we can all draw from that is one way we can live an extraordinary, ordinary life is by walking wisely with those that God puts around us. Because here's the deal, guys. Nobody cares what you believe if you don't live it out in a compelling way, right? 
Nobody gives a rip what you believe unless you live it out in a compelling way. So Paul says, pray persistently. Pray for open doors and then the courage to walk through those doors once God answers your prayer and opens the door. And then number two, walk wisely. Leverage your life and your relationships among outsiders to point them lovingly to a relationship with Jesus. Step three in the game plan to live an extraordinary, ordinary life. Pick it up in verse six. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So step number three in the extraordinary, ordinary life is speak graciously. Now, I know that's harder for some of you in the room than it is for others, but Paul is simply saying how we speak to those around us actually matters. So Christian, listen to me. If you're always angry with people who disagree with you and you're just kind of on edge and when somebody disagrees with your worldview or your belief system, your face just kind of goes red and that little bulgy vein starts thumping on your forehead and you start saying stuff, well, that's why all you progressive God haters are, man, you laugh now, but you're not gonna be laughing when he throws you in the lake of fire, are you? If that's you, if that's the way you look at the world around you, you're missing the boat. It's not a compelling life. That's not gracious speech. But Paul is saying, speak graciously. Season your, your words with, with salt. That doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that you compromise on your convictions. Quite the opposite, actually. You just do all of it with a smile on your face and gracious words flowing from your mouth. I had a mentor say to me one time, an older gentleman, been in ministry a long time, we were talking about the words of Paul in Ephesians 4 where he says to speak the truth in love. And he said to me, Chris, the reality is most Christians are naturally bent or are predisposed to one of those but not the other. And so most people that you meet in the church, he's saying this to me, most people that you meet in the church, followers of Jesus, are either gonna be naturally very loving but they really struggle to get to the truth and so it really is not helpful to the people that they're around. Conversely, there's another group of people who are really good truth tellers, man. They're going to tell you how it is, but they never do it lovingly, and so the world just tunes them out. And he said to me, Chris, the key to Christian maturity is learning how to do both simultaneously. We speak the truth, but we do it in love, graciously, winsomely, seasoned with salt. And listen, guys, anybody can learn how to do this. The most average, ordinary Christian on planet Earth can learn how to do this. You don't have to be Billy Graham or Mother Teresa to speak graciously to those with whom you might disagree. One more step Paul gives us here to live the extraordinary, ordinary lives. Number four on the screens for you, invest generously in the kingdom of Jesus. Look at Philippians chapter four. This will be on the screens for you. He's writing here to a, another group of believer, believers in another city. He says this, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. So he's commending them in their generosity. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. There's like this weird cosmic thing in God's economy that we don't fully understand. That when we invest into the kingdom of God, there's not only a blessing for the person who's receiving that gift, but there's a blessing for the giver of that gift as well. Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul is primarily a missionary. 
largely dependent on the financial support of churches who had a vision to see the gospel spread across the globe. And he's giving thanks for their financial generosity, which, by the way, he calls, listen to this, he calls their generosity a fragrant offering pleasing to God. And then he inserts a promise. I don't know if you notice it, but he says, in light of your generosity, church, God will care for all of your needs. Now, maybe you're out there watching online and you say, Chris, yeah, man, but I'm broke. I can barely afford like Netflix and Hulu and Prime at the same time. And I only get $5 vanilla lattes four times a week on my way to work to, from Starbucks. Okay, American Christian, listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul, again, writing to another church he planted in the city of Corinth. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, meaning that when they looked at their budget, it didn't make sense, it didn't add up, but they still gave generously anyway, trusting that God was gonna make up the difference somehow supernaturally of their own accord. In other words, nobody's pressuring them to do that. They're just happy to participate in what God is doing around the world. Verse four, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Verse seven, but as you excel in everything, faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see also that you excel in this grace as well. So Paul goes, you see those poor brothers and sisters over in the city of Macedonia? Man, they are setting the pace of generous giving in the kingdom of Jesus. And he says to them, follow their example. He goes, learn, learn to excel in this grace of generous investment into the kingdom of Jesus. Now, I just wanna tell you as, as a, you know, a way to encourage you guys, one of the things I've been most proud of as your pastor the last seven years that I've had the grace to serve you in this capacity is that this community of faith right here called New Life Community Church is radically generous. I mean, you guys just blow me away. Every time we have a send offering every fall, just blown away by your generosity. Last year, our send offering was over $200,000 and all that goes to missionaries and church plants and trafficking initiatives and poverty alleviation here in Asheville and around the world. By God's grace, in the last four years since 2019, we've invested over $1.5 million through our send missions offering and our budgeted giving. I just want to say, church, that, for a church our size, kind of a large mid-sized church, that's mind-blowing. I've never been a part of a church that's as generous as you guys are. So I want to say a couple of things in light of that. One is, high five, great job, that's awesome, you're amazing, and at the same time, let's keep going. Man, let's not get weary. Let's not get tired. Let's keep the pedal to the metal as we push the kingdom of Jesus forward here in Asheville and around the world. Listen, whether you can give $5 or you can give $25,000, let's ask God to take our community generosity, our family generosity as a fragrant offering that's pleasing to our king and expands his kingdom here in Asheville and around the world. Ordinary people living ordinary lives, making an extraordinary difference for all eternity. Now let me just kind of recap this quickly and, and we'll be done. So we'll put the steps back on the screens for you. Four steps to live an extraordinary, ordinary life. Pray persistently. Walk wisely. We saw a beautiful example of that in Rosaria's story. Speak graciously and invest generously. 
Now listen, church family, none of these things, none of these four steps are outside of your reach. None of these things require you to be Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL level Christian to do any of these things. These are simple, ordinary practices that ordinary people living ordinary lives can incorporate into their, the rhythm of their lives to see extraordinary progress in the kingdom of Jesus. I love you guys. I love being a part of this faith family together. And here's what I want us to do. I want us now to move into a time of celebration, worship, as we celebrate communion together, as we really look at what Jesus has done for us in a tangible way. This is a tangible expression of the gospel. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band. You guys can make your way up here. When we, when we come in just a moment and we take that little cup and that wafer, here's what we're doing, in a sense. We are gospeling ourselves and we are gospeling one another. Right? We are, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus came into this busted up world for us, that he lived a perfect life that you should have lived and I should have lived, but we couldn't. He died a brutal sinner's death, a substitutionary death to atone for your sin and my sin, and he rose again three days later and he's coming back again. And that's really good news. So if you're here, whether you're a member of this church or not, and you're a follower of Jesus, we're gonna invite you in just a minute to come to the tables. We got three tables in the front. We got two in the back corners. Now listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, but maybe you want to become a Christian after hearing more about Jesus and his kingdom, or maybe you're interested, you just want to ask some questions, add some people come up after the 915, you just want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus. I want you to know, I'm going to be right up here after the service. We're going to have other prayer partners. If you have uh, questions that you want answered, or you're just like, man, I'm in, I'm ready. I want, to, I want to go ahead and take the plunge. Come talk to us. We'd love to pray with you and get your journey with Jesus started. Now, if you came prepared today to give uh, your send offering or your pledge, we're going to have baskets on these tables. As you get the elements, you can drop your offering off. Um, if you didn't come prepared today, that's totally fine. We're going to take up the offering throughout the rest of the year. You can give anytime online or the coffee buckets. Um, uh, uh, on, the, on the coffee bar. So I'm gonna invite you now to stand with me and what we're gonna do is we're gonna exit on the left side of your row, find the nearest table to you. Again, three in the front, two in the back corners, and then come back and sit on the right side. Come back through the right side. Sit down. Don't take the elements yet. We're gonna take them together in just a minute. So you come to get the elements. Church, as you return to your seats, take just a moment and quiet to reflect on what we're about to do to orient your heart, to receive the elements. If you've got... Um, Maybe a unconfessed sin or a pattern of sin in your life. Now would be a great time to just get right with the Lord, confess that sin. The word tells us that he is faithful and true to forgive us of our sin as we confess it to him. But just take about a minute and, and pray and prepare your hearts to receive the elements and then we'll take it together. So you pray in silence where you're at. The night before Jesus went to the cross, <clears throat> he was sharing one final meal with his disciples. And he gave thanks to the Father and he broke apart the bread and he said to them and he says to us today as his modern day followers, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we eat today in remembrance of our Savior. After that, he took the cup from the table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we drink in remembrance of our resurrected king today. Thank you, Jesus. Church family, would you stand with me as we finish with worship?